0: The presiding judge and judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes, the Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state and this honorable court. Be seated. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I am Hunter Murphy, the presiding judge for our panel today. Joining me um, to my right is Judge Allegra Collins, and to my left is Judge Jeff Carpenter. We are here with two cases this afternoon. The first case is Izzy Air versus Triad Aviation 21-284. And if the parties are ready, we will hear from the appellate.
1: Good afternoon, judges. Hope all are well. I'm James Krause. I'm here representing uh Izzy Air and the individual plaintiffs. Uh there is a lot to cover. I will move as expeditiously as I can, and I'm told I need to tell you that I reserve. Five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you sir. Thank you. I think it's important to start out with remembering why we're here on appeal. We are not here to decide the merits of the case. We're not here to decide whether plaintiff has, will succeed at trial. We are here to succeed to ask whether plaintiff has a right to trial, uh, not to determine on the merits. As you're aware, the court reviews the motion to dismiss de novo and construes the complaint liberally. Allegations in the complaint are taken as true. We are here to see if under some legal theory, and that is a quote, some legal theory, uh, the plaintiff may be allowed to proceed. The court should not have dismissed the case unless it is a certainty that no relief can be had under any construction of the allegations in the complaint. This case does not sound in contract or tort specifically. It is a deceptive trade practices act brought under that statute in North Carolina. This case is based upon not the engine failure itself as defendant claims. This is not purely an aircraft accident case. I've litigated probably over 300 aircraft accident cases, and this is not a pure tort aircraft accident case. This case is based upon the unethical, irresponsible, and deceitful acts by a North Carolina defendant who consistently and to this day refused to honor the terms of its warranty. Its engine failed less than two hours after it overhauled it. It certified it under its representative status as a Federal Aviation Administration repair station. Despite all that and the risk of life, which was only prevented by an exceptionally skillful pilot being able to land the the plane without an engine. Despite all that, this defendant, and being notified properly, refuses to this day to honor its warranty or even to discuss the terms of its warranty.
2: Can you just point me to the record where it exactly is, you said that they were notified correctly? Can you can you give me a record site as to where that actual notice is? It It's in the,
1: I, I don't have it in front of me, but it's in the affidavit of, of the plaintiff, Hugh Tuttle, where he says his lawyer notified the defendant within days or a few weeks of the failure. Subsequent to that, they were, the defendant was notified by representatives of the federal government investigating. That is also in my in my affidavit and the plaintiff's affidavit, plaintiff Hugh Tuttle's affidavit. They were also notified by the Hull Insurance Carrier for Izzy Air about a year later. They were also notified when I sent representation letters not only to Triad Aviation but also to the, the magneto manufacturer, this engine would fail because of a magneto problem. It's our contention that the magnetos were not installed correctly and, and worked loose. I sent a representation letter to um, Jeff Kelly of Kelly Aerospace. He responded immediately to me and he also, because the magnetos have inspected his facility, He responded immediately and also told me that he called the president of Triangle, a triad aviation, to inform him that he had gotten a letter and to ask uh, uh, the owner of Triad whether he had received a similar letter, which apparently he had, but I didn't know it at the time. The other thing that's important is that the owner of Triad, when he was informed by One of the people who informed him, I think it might have been the Hull Insurance Carrier's representative, said he had gotten no formal notice of claim. Under the terms of his warranty, there is no formal notice of claim required. There's not even a definition of a formal notice of claim. It merely says that Triad needs to be informed of the failure via telephone call, which was done, or via letter. And importantly, the telephone call by the plaintiff's counsel requested a copy of the warranty, which was then sent by the president of Triad to the plaintiff. He did not have a copy of the warranty at that point. That is an acknowledgment by Triad that a claim had been made because they supplied the warranty that was requested.
0: Let me ask a procedure um, question. You know, we're here on a 12B6 motion, in, in order is how. Um, at least the, the motion was designated in the order it's designated, you're referring us to, to many things outside of four corners of, of the complaint or even the answer. Was this hearing transformed into a summary judgment hearing? Not that I know of, but I believe that the, the
1: extraneous, as you might call them, documents, go to the defense of the motion to dismiss. We think the complaint stands on itself. There's plenty of allegations in the complaint regarding the Deceptive Trade Practices Act and the ongoing failure of the defendant to comply with with its requirements under its its warranty. So we believe it's set forth in the complaint.
3: The complaint seems to set forth uh, allegations based in general negligence, tort. And also allegations based in contract, i.e., breach of warranty. It's pretty rare. I don't know that I've ever seen a standalone unfair and deceptive trade practices with nothing more, as far as a uh, cause of action being pled. Um, Why is this not a general negligence case or a breach of warranty case? You only ask for the remedy under uh, unfair and deceptive trade practices.
1: The Let me see if I can answer your question, Judge. Um, the basis of the complaint does start with an engine failure and sloppy overhaul. There's no question about that. But that is not the basis of this complaint, although the facts are alleged that allege that to start the process. But the allegations in the complaint mention the, the, the under Deceptive the Trade Practices Act count, mention the count, mention the ongoing Uh, lack of responsiveness by the defendant to legitimate claims under the warranty. But it's not a warranty claim per se. It arises out of the failure to honor the warranty. But we never discussed the elements of the warranty claim, what was done, what was not done. The, The substance of the warranty claim, it was never discussed between us and the defendant, nor the defendant's counsel. Nor the defendant's insurance representative. What we are here for is because repeatedly, it refused to eat. The defendant even refused to discuss the terms of the warranty, and therefore making the warranty, in our view, fraudulent, illusory. So this defendant is producing a warranty on its work that it never intends to honor. That's the nature that's at the very practice of that claim.
3: Kind of let me. Let me dig into that a little bit, and and basically explain to you why I asked the question. Okay. If it's based in tort, the crash took place in South Carolina. If it's based in warranty, there's a form selection clause in the contract. But you're telling me it's, it's really based in neither.
1: I didn't draft the Deceptive Trade Practices Act, but it is a hybrid. It is neither tort nor contract. But, and it's a little difficult to get your head around. It's difficult for me to get my head around. But basically, it is neither tort nor contract. This is not a pure tort case. This is not a pure, in fact, evidence of that is because, and I'll get into this later if I get time, evidence of that is in the fact that the courts are split on whether to apply lex loci, to choice of law issues under Deceptive Trade Practices Act or whether to apply most significant relationship tests under Deceptive Trade Practices Act. so, And the Supreme Court of North Carolina has not ruled on that issue. So when you get into choice of law under Deceptive Trade Practices Act, the courts neither find it to be a tort or a contract issue, but instead is a hybrid issue which deserves a little bit more thought than just pure lex loci or significant relationship test? Well,
0: from a legal perspective, our court can't really have a split. We may have opinions that are are not controlling, given Enrie's civil penalty tells us the oldest case controls. Um, That's the dictate we've been given from the Supreme Court. So of these cases, I think there's a number listed of them in the defendant's brief. Sorry. Uh, or maybe it's in your brief page 8 and 9, potentially. Which of these cases is the controlling precedent under Henry civil penalty?
1: I'm not sure that any one case is controlling to uh, answer you uh, honestly on that judge. Um, let me see if i can get to my notes let Yeah, I have to take credit take page
0: 28 of, of your brief
1: it is important, I don't don't know if I can answer the court's question specifically, because there's a split of authority, and it depends on whether you look at this as a business case where the last act occurred that harmed the business or the tort is ongoing, uh, where the last act occurred. Defendant would want the court to believe that the last act that occurred giving rise to this case is a crash, that's not true. Under Deceptive Trade Practices Act case, these acts are ongoing and the acts are in North Carolina. Plus the the nexus of North Carolina, the defendant's located here, the warranty was here, the warranty claims North Carolina law. The the engine was repaired here. It was it was sold or sent from here as a repaired engine. And the the contract, the warranty says that any repairs will be effected in North Carolina. So there's a heavy North Carolina element to this, which I argue leans, makes, should make the court respectfully lean towards applying the most significant relationship test to this ongoing deceptive trade practices act case. It is not a simple tort case, the crash occurred in North Carolina and everything flows from that. I'm well familiar with Lex Loci in North Carolina.
3: Crash occurred in South Carolina, right? Sorry crash occurred in South Carolina, correct? I'm sorry,
1: did I miss, did I misspeak? Yeah, South Carolina. But I'm willing to say it no, it, no, it occurred in South Carolina, that's certainly in the plaintiffs or South Carolina residents. We're not disputing that. But again, this is not a simple airplane crash case. It is, it is the ongoing, I know I'm repeating myself, it's the ongoing acts from a North Carolina defendant in North Carolina that continue to cause harm. So the last rise giving the last event giving rise to this claim, has still not occurred. They're still occurring in North Carolina. They're still refusing to, to honor the warranty, which they agreed to do under North Carolina law. And it makes no sense to say we're going to apply North Carolina law in our contract or in our warranty, and then say, oh, now that you've alleged uh, Deceptive Trade Practices Act, Let's look at South Carolina law, which was net when in all the motions to di- dismiss that were filed, and in all the discussions I had with opposing counsel, South Carolina law was never mentioned. It's only been mentioned now that the four-year statute of uh, four-year statute of limitations under the North Carolina deceptive trade practices act, has come into play.
2: But it, but isn't it isn't it applying North Carolina law to actually apply the law that sends us down to South Carolina? I anticipated
1: your question. All right. Yes, it is applying North Carolina law to apply South Carolina law, but that surely could not have been the intention of the defendant when it put the, we want to apply North Carolina law to our warranty claims because Triad repairs engines, as far as I know, from all over the country, especially from many states. Why would it be willing to say, we're going to apply North Carolina law to apply whatever law we, we want that's out there? Under Lex Loco, that would create a nightmare of Triad having to wrestle with different states' laws. Triad, when it put that in its contract or its warranty, clearly intended to have one law to apply to all of its engine overhauls that it sent throughout the United States or wherever it sent them. So that is a Johnny-come-lately sort of argument that, oh, we're going to apply North Carolina law to apply South Carolina law. If South Carolina law had been more favorable, you would never have triad saying we're going to apply South Carolina law under whatever choice of law regimen.
2: But we might have you saying that. Sorry? But we might have you saying that. (laughs) Well, you might. You might be saying Uh, that, but, but I am
1: trying as best I can to navigate Choice of law issues in the uh, in this case under the Deceptive Trade Practices Act, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention the legislative act that occurred after after uh, Triad put the choice of law provision in its warranty that says retroactively and pro- prospectively that the parties to a business contract, and Izzy Air is a business and Triad is a business, and this goes to your point, Judge, about it being a, a contractual nexus here, they may specify the choice of law in their contract, which was done, which was chosen by Triad and which was accepted by my client. They may select the choice of law to apply to their business transaction, and this is a business transaction. Izzy Air is a business. That was done, so that choice of law should not be disturbed by the courts or by this. In fact, it the, 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 the statute says, let me just go to that specifically. The parties, the business contract or the transaction is subject to the business contract, whether it bears a reasonable relation to this state, and the provision in the business contract is contrary to the fundamental policy of the jurisdiction whose law would apply in the absence of the party's choice of North Carolina law. So even if it's contrary to North Carolina law or contrary to South Carolina law, the parties may choose and did choose the law to be applied. And the legislature indicated its willingness to, accept, to allow the parties to accept, to state their choice of law. And here I would... Ask the court's indulgence and bring its attention to the appendix, uh, actually the the addendum, page 11, the chart from the North Carolina School of Law professor um, Coyle. This section, section 1G, requires North Carolina courts to enforce a choice of law provisions selecting North Carolina law.
3: What are you reading from there?
1: That is from his article which is part of the addendum Choice of Laws in North Carolina, Professor John Coyle, October 2019. It's part of the addendum. I could find no case interpreting this statute
2: uh, despite looking it, but. So is it your contention that, that that act then negates the borrowing statute? Oh, you know, yes. So it com- completely negates it, even where a cause of action arose out of this state? Your Honor, that's what I've been trying to say. The cause of action that we're suing on did not arise. So the that's state. my question. Is it, Are you arguing that this borrowing statute simply doesn't apply because the cause of action didn't arise out of the state, or that the act— actually just negates it. So even if the cause of action arose out of the state, the spiring statute still doesn't apply.
1: If I understand Your Honor's question, I believe that this statute negates any application of any other law once the, once the parties agree that North Carolina law should apply. And again, it's nonsensical to say that North Carolina law will apply in order to apply South Carolina law. And there's a portion of my brief uh, I still have a little time left. Before of my brief, that talks about South Carolina law. Even under South Carolina law, its Deceptive Trade Practices Act, I think it's called SCUPTA, has several things that are important for this court to decide. So it's not a simple matter of just going to South Carolina and applying its statute of limitations. Um, let me just get to that portion of my notes. We need to also talk about when the cause of action arose. Did it arise? If it were a tort, it would have arisen when the crash occurred. We're claiming that it arose once plaintiff had final determination that they were not going to settle the case, that they were not going to continue to engage in settlement negotiations, but they were instead going to rely upon motions to dismiss. So instead of making good on their, they weren't promises, but their, their, uh, inquiries regarding damages and uh, liability they chose the motion to dismiss and in south carolina the ongoing violations south carolina recognizes ongoing violations are at the core of north of of plaintiff's claims in south carolina uh, scooped itself contemplates that an unlawful act or practice may result in multiple violations which cause the statute of limitations to run. And it runs anew with each violation. It also recognizes collateral estoppel where delay was induced by the conduct. Importantly, this may consist of express representations that the claim will be settled without litigation or representations that suggest a lawsuit is not necessary. That was made by uh, Star Aviation's representative saying, we need an extension of time to answer in hopes that we can resolve this matter without basically hiring counsel. So we were continuously led to believe that there would be, uh, there were implications, that there that there would be um, uh, negotiations regarding uh, settlement. In fact, even after motions to dismiss were filed, counsel for defendant continued to ask for. Um, damages information and complained that when I complained that that they had never made a settlement offer, she said, well, you never sent me damages information, and I responded to her, we sent you damages information to your insurance representative over a year ago. So we don't know, and in fact, as, as, as late as two weeks ago, I was seeing if there was a way we could resolve this, but they, at this point, don't want to resolve it, and I kind of understand that after the effort that's been put into Let,
0: the- let me ask a, a question. Assuming we agree with your interpretation of 1G in general, I guess I see your complaint as bringing kind of two sets of unfair and deceptive trade practices. You've got one related to the fear and the damages more related to the breach and the misrepresentations at the time of contract. Then you have a new set of... Acts when they um, don't respond to the warranty, they don't honor the warranty. Under 1G, the it's about the contract in whole or the contract in part. So wouldn't that form selection still only apply to the warranty, the failure to honor the warranty claim if we agree that that 1G does apply? Wouldn't it only apply to that and not to the the fear, and the crash-related damages?
1: I think that's a legitimate interpretation. In fact, one North Carolina court, I don't have it in front of me, and I won't take the time to pull it up, applied a three-year statute of limitations to some parts of the plaintiff's claim and applied the DTPA's four-year statute to other parts of the claim. So you could bifurcate the claims, uh, and I think that would be a legitimate exercise of uh, judicial discretion.
0: Assuming bifurcating the claims, and this is switching gears just a little bit, um, but you're coming up with just a minute at this part of your argument, the, the warranty issue, to me, seems to be controlled, rightly or wrongly, by Mitchell versus Linville, which is raised in the defendant's brief. It was raised by the defendant at the arguments on the motion below. Up till now, I still have never seen plaintiff respond to Mitchell versus um, Linville in any argument below in the brief here. What is the response to Mitchell versus Linville regarding that there has to be uh, substantial aggravating circumstances to proceed on a warranty claim under UDTP?
1: If this were a pure warranty claim, I think that would be an issue, but it's not a pure warranty claim. It's a Deceptive Trade Practices Act claim. It is related to a warranty, but it could be related to breach of contract. It could be related to a tort of fraudulent misrepresentation. It could be related to mistake. It could be related to any number of things. But it, but the Deceptive Trade Practices Act is a broad statute. It does not need a warranty necessarily alone, it, as I said, it could be fraudulent misrepresentation. It could be all kinds of tort general areas. But I do not dispute that the warranty claim was the start of this and the failure of the engine was the start of this whole process. But that sh- we have to think about whether we want North Carolina corporations. This is more an equity argument. But do you want North Carolina corporations to say, We're going to give you a warranty, but if the product that we warrant fails, we're not going to honor our warranty. We will only honor, despite your complying with the provisions of the warranty in notification, despite you doing nothing to obviate or cancel the warranty. But we are going to only agree to let you enforce the terms of the warranty if you file a lawsuit. I don't think we want North Carolina corporations to operate under that. I don't think we want North Carolina corporations to be allowed to say, here's our warranty. You can trust us until you need to enforce it. And at that point, we're not going to listen to you. We're not going to respond to you. We're simply going to say, file a suit
0: and we'll see what happens. Do do you agree or or disagree that there's not any substantial aggravating circumstances alleged in the complaint, however, as described by Mitchell versus Limbaugh?
1: Uh, I'm not sure I can't agree because I'm not familiar with that case, Your Honor. Agree or disagree. I'm sorry. Thank you. Any other questions? at this point? No. Sure. Thank you. I'm
0: into my rebuttal. You are, you'll have about three minutes left. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, I appreciate it. We'll hear from the appellee when you have a moment. Don't rush.
4: good afternoon and may it please the court uh, Steven Bader from Cranville Sumner here in Raleigh on behalf of the defendant Apple E-Triad Aviation the plaintiff's complaint is time barred on its face under North Carolina's borrowing statute. The trial court's dismissal of the complaint for failure to state a claim upon which relief should be granted should therefore be dismissed now there's three criteria that we all agree trigger application of the borrowing statute First are the plaintiffs, non-residents of North Carolina. That is agreed in this case. Second, is the complaint alleged barred by the jurisdiction where the claim arose? If it arose in South Carolina, uh, it would be barred. That's a three-year statute of limitations for an unfair and deceptive trade claim. And then third, did the claim arise in the state outside of North Carolina? And here it arose in South Carolina. I want to address one of Judge Collins' questions here, which is apparently the dispute as to whether that is, in fact, the case. And when the court looks at the complaint, this is pages 4 to 10 of the record, the only allegation here that we have is that there was a plane crash in September of 2016 that resulted in various injuries to the plaintiffs. That is the sole wrongful act that is alleged with any specificity. When we look at paragraph 17 in particular, that as a result of the conduct of the defendants, the plaintiff's claim personal and psychological injuries, property and other economic damages in excess of $25,000, including but not limited to pre-impact fear and terror, bodily injuries, future medical costs, total loss of the aircraft, loss of income, increased insurance costs, increase aircraft operational costs and other damages. All of that relates to the crash itself. There is nothing in this complaint with any particularity that says, and on top of that, there was a different instance where the defendants engaged in some unfair and deceptive trade practice. The closest that we get is paragraph 10, which reads that the defendant triad within a reasonable time after the occurrence and breach complained of, was notified of the failure of the products and its breaches and has been repeatedly so informed since that initial notification. Despite these notifications, Defendant Triad has refused to honor the express warranty it performed on its work in parts supplied for the engine. And the affidavit of Mr. Tuttle uh, that was referenced by counsel I believe if the court looks at, I think it's documentary exhibit number 68, but it's page two of the appendix to appellant's brief. At paragraph 10, Mr. Tuttle affirms that he's not sure of the exact date when he informed Triad of the failure, but it was some point close in time to when the accident occurred. Okay, so in looking at all of that, what we have is a claim, injuries that clearly occurred in South Carolina on the face of the complaint. And injuries that the plaintiffs knew about back in September of 2016, or if for some reason the court's inclined to go beyond the allegations in the complaint, in w- which it can't, Mr. Tuttle's affidavit would be shortly thereafter. So all three boxes are checked, the borrowing statute applies, and the claim is time-barred. And that, was done, that, that principle was discussed by this court as recently as 2020 in a case called George versus Lowe's Companies that's cited in our brief. Now, what what the plaintiffs have have done here today, or, or their their position in trying to complicate this matter, is they've raised, by my calculation, basically four different arguments or theories as to why the borrowing statute doesn't apply. And so, I want to use my time with this panel to go before through you, those. you get that
0: in, into the substance of your argument. I, I don't want to interrupt it, but we're talking a little bit about the affidavit versus the complaint. Record page 21 indicates that the trial court consit, reviewed court having reviewed the court file and submissions of the parties, having heard the arguments of counsel, and having reviewed the authorities cited by counsel concludes. Do the submissions of the parties not include the affidavits? I, I recognize you objected to that at the hearing. Was there ever anything where the trial court said it was not going to consider those?
4: I don't. I don't believe it was necessarily done in those terms, but it was a 12B6 motion on the complaint.
0: But we often have, you know, 12B6 uh, motions that convert to summary judgment when the, the trial court considers things outside the pleadings.
4: And I don't, I don't believe that happened in this case. And, and I and I only referenced that affidavit in response to Judge Collins' question about the timing of when Triad allegedly. Said it wasn't going to perform under the warranty, which, as I'm understanding the arguments today, that would be the instance that would give rise to the unfair and deceptive trade practices claim. Now, now my argument, to be clear, is that that's not pleaded. There is no pleading their complaint saying that on this date and time, that's when that happened. All they say is there's this ongoing denial of the complaint, or denial of the claim at some point shortly thereafter the crash. So within a
2: reasonable time is not specific enough,
4: is that Cor- your argument? Well correct, certainly to show that they have in fact identified a separate unfair and deceptive trade practice, but more critically that that, pra- that, that event occurred within the applicable statute of limitations time period. So we, we are here just looking at the complaint and the arguments that are, are raised here by counsel. And I've, i've kind of organized them them into four uh, the first argument is that there's some type of choice of law analysis that has to be done before we get to the borrowing statute that's not the case the second argument is that this choice of law clause and the warranty somehow overrides application of the borrowing statute that's not correct the third argument is that even if the borrowing statute applies This claim is timely under South Carolina law, and I think the theory here is because it continues to accrue or be told because the defendants continue to deny liability for the claim. Um, That is not supported by the allegations in the complaint or the record otherwise. And then the last argument that was touched on a bit uh, towards the end of counsel's remarks is that the defendants are somehow equitably stopped from asserting a statute of limitations. so going through those four arguments, the first argument being that there's some kind of choice of law analysis that needs to be done first, be it let's loci, be it uh, most significant relationship or otherwise, that's not the case. When the court looks at George versus Lowes Home Center and the application of the borrowing statute, even in cases before that, uh, including Glenn versus Stone Stoneville Furniture, a 1987 opinion from this court, what, what, what that opinion says is that is that in matters affecting a party's substantial rights, the lex loci, the law of the form where the claim arose, controls. Procedural rights, such as statute of limitations, are controlled by the law of the form. But the General Assembly, in passing the borrowing statute, created an exception to that. And it said, if the claim arises outside of this state, then we're going to apply that state's procedural limitations. That is the the full extent of the consideration that's required for the, before the borrowing statute applies, which on the pleaded allegations here, uh, all three elements are satisfied.
2: So I want to ask a question about that. If uh, if the procedural rules apply, and this action were filed in South Carolina, because that's where the the claim arose,
4: would they have personal jurisdiction over you? I, I don't know the answer to that question, Your Honor. I don't know how that would necessarily be defended. I'm sure the arguments that we would hear would be that by overhauling an engine that they knew was going to be used by South Carolina parties that was going to be operated in South Carolina, they availed themselves of the South Carolina forum. But I, I can't say necessarily that if triad were sued in South Carolina, it would stipulate or that would otherwise contest it. I just don't, I just don't know if we have enough information in the record or if I could in the way a South Carolina lawyer it seem, might. It seems an odd law to
2: set up that you have to, you 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 can't sue here, you have to sue there. But when you sue there, there's no personal jurisdiction over the defendant. So that seems to be conflict.
4: Well, I I I, I believe, and I don't want to get too far afield, but I, I want to make sure I'm responsive. That when when you look at the borrowing statute as a whole. And I don't want to be be misleading, but I don't want to de- dedicate too much time to this. I, I believe that it accounts for the possibility that a defendant may not be subject to jurisdiction, and that would may impact whether or not the statute would apply and okay. and i, and I p- please do not um, you know if I, if I'm incorrectly stating that it's only because I'm trying to be responsive and helpful not to take this too far afield okay. but I think really the bigger point in the policy with the borrowing statute is that if you have any any allegation that arises out of state and involves a plaintiff that's not not a citizen of the state of North Carolina, what you can't do or what the General Assembly doesn't want to have happen is just because a defendant is subject to personal jurisdiction in North Carolina, we can then take that lawsuit and put it into our court system. Because the events didn't happen in North Carolina, the plaintiffs are from North Carolina. That's exactly what happened in the George versus Lowe's case. You had an Indiana resident, uh, was injured at a lowe store in Kentucky well Lowe is the subject to jurisdiction in North Carolina, but the problem was his claim was time barred in the jurisdiction where it arose that 's the policy behind the borrowing statute that 's the policy that would be implicated by the facts of this case and building on that, I would add that this is incidentally not the first time an airplane related accident has spawned the borrowing statute and I cited to two cases. Um, Lauren versus U.S. Air, a decision of this court from 1996, and then Broadfoot, Broadfoot versus Everett, a decision from this court from 1967. In the Broadfoot decision, you had an airplane crash that occurred in Pennsylvania. That was where the claim arose. Um, in the Warren decision, you had some luggage that fell and struck a passenger in a plane in airspace, either over Arizona or California. Uh, and in that instance, that was where the claim arose. And so when we look at this case, the injuries, where those injuries occurred, all of that is South Carolina, South Carolina plaintiffs, and the South Carolina limitations period has expired.
0: Assuming that we um, accepted the appellant's argument that the warranty portion um, possibly could be bifurcated from the damages on the ground, damages in the air portion of the, the Trade Act, Trade Practices Act, why would the refusal to abide by the warranty not have occurred within North Carolina if we were looking just at that sliver of the case?
4: Well, I think fundamentally, and I'll go back to the 12B6 aspect of how this case comes before the court, because that's not pleaded in the complaint there is no allegation in the complaint that within the state of North Carolina at a particular time, my client engaged in an unfair and deceptive trade practice by denying this request for compensation. But I think kind of building on on that point and the choice of law warranty in general, um, I mean, when we look at exactly what that says, it, it reads that in the event of a dispute on this warranty, the laws of the state of North Carolina shall apply. I don't know how that phrase or that provision can be interpreted to say that if aviation get or if tried aviation gets sued for an unfair and deceptive trade practice in the state of North Carolina, that it would be giving up defenses it may otherwise have under the borrowing statute. I don't think there's any way that can be read to get to that particular outcome. Well, I mean, isn't
2: the issue is how broadly we read on this warranty? right? I mean, it can either be extremely narrow and only one of the terms of the warranty or extremely broadly, which is anything having to do with the warranty, right?
4: I think that's correct. And so
2: as the drafter, wouldn't we read that sort of against you?
4: Uh, Well, I I, I, I think that that's not—I think that the the issue isn't so much the breadth of how it's interpreted— as whether or not the pleaded allegations really get to a warranty dispute. I mean, an unfair and deceptive trade practices act claim is not a dispute on a warranty. So it's not a circumstance where we're trying to decide uh, something that's limited to the warranty and how broad or how narrow uh, that term should be construed. This is an unfair and deceptive trade practices claim. You know, I cited at least two cases in the briefing, United Dominion uh, Industrial versus Overhead Door and the ICO Corporation versus Michelin Tire, and those are two cases where you had a business contract between parties that had some kind of a choice of law provision that says, if we've got a disagreement here, that this particular law is going to apply. And ultimately, one of those parties was sued for an unfair and deceptive trade practice and the other party said, well, this choice of law provision controls. And in both instances, the court says, no, it does not. That is a statutory cause of action. It's, it, it, it sounds in tort, it sounds in contract, but it's based in statute, it arises out of statute. So it doesn't come from this private agreement between the parties, and it cannot be construed to dictate which statutory claims would, would otherwise apply. Um, the 1G-3 argument is, is creative as well, but when we look at that statute, again, it reads that parties to a business contract may agree on the contract that North Carolina law shall govern their right and duties in whole or in part. The purpose of that statute was to eliminate litigation relating to whether or not a choice of law agreement was enforceable in the first place, to say we don't want arguments that relate to whether this agreement bears any relation to the state of North Carolina or whether it's otherwise contrary to the public policy of the state of North Carolina. There's, there's no case law no authority that says that that provision would somehow override application of the borrowing statute in a circumstance like this, where there is an unfair and deceptive trade practice claim that really, apparently, is based on a denial of a claim that otherwise would be rooted in in, tort or in contract, tort, or negligence. So there's just no n- nothing that's been cited by counsel or otherwise to suggest that that would be an appropriate construction of that statute. And again, to the contrary, the legislature crafted that for particular reasons that have nothing to do with the borrowing statute. The, 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 the third argument, and I believe I've touched on the first two, at least relating to there's no need for a choice of law analysis and how we would construe this warranty, um, is counsel's argument that the Unfair and Deceptive Trade Practices Act claim that they've sued out is timely under South Carolina law. And I think if I'm understanding this argument, it's really that there is an ongoing violation that every single day that Triad Aviation says we're not going to pay the claim, that amounts to an unfair and deceptive trade practice. I I would again go back to the pleaded allegations. That is not alleged in the complaint. I think as a matter of, of, of policy, it's troubling to say that any claim that really is rooted in negligence or warranty can be turned into an unfair and deceptive trade practice solely because the defendant chooses to defend the claim. But there's also no authority cited for the idea that there's any ongoing violation or any particular event separate and apart from the crash itself that would support that claim. And there's the, 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 the authority cited by counsel here. You know, this Ortho McNeil Janssen pharmaceutical case, the South Carolina case, that, that's a pharmaceutical labeling case where the south carolina court is talking about ongoing violations because every time there is something that's contrary to that state's unfair and deceptive trade practicing act that is that is published with with each or or on each new label that that would constitute a separate claim that's really nothing close to what's going on here
0: did the south carolina court limit that holding at all it seems like a very global holding and you know if I were interpreting those words coming from the North Carolina Supreme Court, I would view that pretty globally. So what about that case, other than it's different facts, and the holding of the South Carolina Supreme Court there should give us any indication that it's limited to that situation?
4: Well, I I I think really the the distinction, if I'm understanding your, your question, Judge Murphy, really really gets to the facts and that is apparently the example given by the plaintiffs as to an ongoing unfair and deceptive trade practice under South Carolina law. And my, my, my point in distinguishing it is that labeling a pharmaceutical bottle and putting it out uh, for sale in such a way that it would be contrary to the statute, each time you label it, it's not a stretch to say, well, that is, each independent act is a different violation of the statute. But to just say, will you pay the claim, no we won't, that every single day that the defendant says, and we continue to maintain our denial, that that is a separate unfair and deceptive trade practice has no support that I'm aware of any case law in this state or in South Carolina, uh, which would apply given the application of the borrowing statute here. Is the difference
0: in, in the South Carolina case, in the pharmaceutical case, in actual Positive action versus a failure to act or respond is, is where I, a line can be drawn.
4: I, I, I think that's I think that's a fair characterization of it. I mean, it's the, the I mean, again, the only allegation here, and I'm 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 hesitant to even go this far because I want to make sure I don't deviate from what's alleged in the complaint, which is just that Triad Aviation was made aware of it and didn't compensate the plaintiffs. That's a sole allegation. There isn't any continuing affirmative act of any kind that's going on which would be distinct, Judge Murphy, to your point, from what's going on in that South Carolina opinion.
2: Can you point me to somewhere in the record where um, you affirmatively deny the claim? This is not this is not a, a warranty claim and we will not fix or pay?
4: Um, I, I'm not certain I can.
2: Isn't that part of the problem?
4: Uh, well. I don't think it's part of our problem. I mean, what, what they have pleaded here is really a negligence, breach of warranty claim in their complaint. They say in September of 2016, there is an airplane crash. We sustained injury. They plead that at some point in time they asked. at some point in time, not specific, they say that we denied that. And their response to us, from our perspective, at least in the record, was the 12b6 motion to dismiss and when i read this it just says defendant triad has refused
2: to honor the express warranty so refuse to honor it seems like to me that could be read that has has you have not affirmatively said we won't fix it you just have strung them along continuously and that's the ongoing harm there's never any definitive we won't we won't fix it or pay for it so there was never a time when it was I guess right to sue on it, or realize that these negotiations were going nowhere.
4: I, I don't think that that is pleaded with sufficient particularity in the complaint to arrive at that conclusion. I, I, I understand Your Honor's um, question and sort of framing it in the form of, that the plaintiffs may, may argue, but I don't think that that is what they have really said here. I just want to make sure I'm looking at this correctly. Well, and I, let me build on that point by kind of getting to the last argument, and it goes to Council's argument that equitable estoppel should apply. I think if that were, in fact, the plaintiff's theory in this case, then they would need to plead with some specificity that because, because Triad Aviation refused to honor the warranty, they took actions that were detrimental to themselves, being not bringing this lawsuit on time, waiting to sue, other things of that nature. They don't allege anything like that in the complaint. Again, they allege this accident occurred, the damages happened immediately, and then this generic allegation in paragraph 10 of their complaint that we knew about it and apparently didn't honor the warranty.
0: What rule of civil procedure would allow them to include
4: that in their complaint?
0: regarding a response to defense. Even with contributory negligence, you have to have the contributory negligence pled by the defendant before you file a pleading regarding the last clear chance. I, I just don't see anything in our our Rules of pres- Civil Procedure that would say you need to anticipate an affirmative defense that may or may not be filed by your adversary when they can waive statute limitations. So kind of point me there, because th- that's one part of your brief that I, I, I was not fully comprehending. So kind of explain that to me a little bit more?
4: Uh, I, th- I think that goes so- sort of two different ways. I think there's th- the first question would, would really be if, in fact, the theory here is that, is, as Judge Collins pointed out, that we strung them along, that we somehow didn't do what we were supposed to, and that that is, in fact, the unfair and deceptive trade practice, and that that occurred on a particular date and time and that that date and time is within the statute of limitations, they are free to plead that, and they need to plead that to adequately state a claim for relief. I, I don't necessarily disagree that as it pertains to the equitable estoppel argument, they wouldn't need to to plead and anticipate that, but we're, I'm, I'm talking about to some extent different things. I think my first point is they haven't stated a claim for relief here because they haven't said this is this is when this particular act occurred, that constitutes an unfair and deceptive trade practice, that's within the statute of limitations. They've given us this more generic reference. But they've also raised this idea that equitable estoppel would otherwise prevent uh, Triad from from seeking application of the borrowing statute here. And I want to just touch briefly on what was submitted that would again go beyond the the allegations in the complaint to try to support this. And I want to start by going right to one of Judge Carpenter's questions here, which was, why wasn't this suit out in negligence contract or warranty? And I think the answer to that question that's demonstrated by their submissions is because it was time-barred. I mean, the first thing that happened here is on September 9th, j- just for some context, September 30th of 2016 is the airplane crash. That's the airplane crash that's the subject of this lawsuit. So within three years, On September 9th of 2019, the complaint is filed and it alleges negligence, breach of contract, breach of warranty, all three plaintiffs suing the wrong defendant, suing a triad engine services and parts, not triad aviation. Now for reasons that aren't in the record and that are beyond, certainly beyond our knowledge, there was no decision made to try to amend the complaint to correct the misnomer. Instead, the complaint was voluntarily dismissed within on, on November 25th of 2019, so within a couple of months. Now within one year of that, on June 15th of 2020, the complaint was filed again. It was a, a breach of warranties, an unfair and deceptive trade practice claim brought just by Izzy Air, not against the party that had previously been sued, but now against Triad Aviation. Now in the interim, counsel's correct, He's, having, he's discussing this case, he's trying to engage in settlement discussions, but nobody is doing anything to prevent him from starting a lawsuit or telling him that they'll agree to toll or that he doesn't otherwise need to protect his client's actions. He's, in fact, starting lawsuits. And then he's dismissing them, and then he's refiling them under different theories with different parties. Now, after that happens, an amended complaint is filed on July 22nd of 2020, alleging breach of contract, breach of warranties, unfair and deceptive trade practices, uh, and I'm sorry, adding, so that would be adding the breach of contract claim. So now he's adding the breach of contract claim. Then what he does, what the plaintiffs do in this case, is they take kind of their, their overall mulligan and they say on September 15th of 2020, now we're gonna file our second amended complaint, now we've got these three plaintiffs directly against triad aviation, the one count of unfair and deceptive trade practices, the idea presumably being that that's still within four years of the plane crash, so we can use the four-year unfair and deceptive trade practices act statute to keep this claim alive. Okay. And that's how we get to the borrowing statute. And that's where the problem comes in. Because when you look at all three of the elements, all the boxes are checked. They're checked based on the pleaded allegations, They are consistent with how this court has applied that statute in the past, and they should apply in this case as well. And to just close the loop on on the equitable estoppel piece, you know, I heard counsel argue that there was a request before he filed the first complaint for an extension of time to answer. That doesn't suggest anything other than we know we're going to get sued, and we just like a courtesy to get our response in line. Not that they're trying to lull the plaintiffs into inaction or to prevent them from taking action or that they're going to settle the claim or there's settlement money coming. There's nothing in any of their submissions to support that. The only thing that, that it shows is that the defense was interested in gathering as much information as it could about the case, that would entertain any and all settlement offers, and when these complaints were filed or refiled one year later, that there was a belief that there was some limitations, problems with the complaint. But other than that, nothing to suggest or or lull the plaintiffs into foregoing any of their legal rights. I I know my time is is coming to an end here. I would ask that the the trial court's dismissal be affirmed. I want to make sure I've answered any other questions that the panel has. Thank you very much.
0: Mr.
1: with The court's indulgence, I'm going to race through some of these points because I think they're important to address each one of them. Uh, It's simply not true what he said about the request for extension to answer, as we state in the record that was considered by the court below along with an agreement that time to answer can be extended 45, 60, or 90 days to see if this matter can be addressed among ourselves without the need for assignment of counsel. So it wasn't just we know we're going to get sued. Secondly, as to the complaint, we believe the complaint is sufficient, and he left this out, failure to honor the provisions of its warranties expressed and implied over a lengthy time, despite having actual notice of the in-flight failure, which it, of the engine which it had overhauled, and a claim has been made thereupon. Um, regarding my uh, malpractice, where I sued the wrong defendant for the first time in a 40 year career, I'm not proud of that. But what he fails to, le- to mention to the court is the agent for service of process is the same, and the president, it, who, which is the same as president for both entities, Triad Aviation and Triad. Parts and accessories, whatever that other entity's called. That's who was served with our complaint, the erroneously named defendant complaint. So the point is not only was Triad notified by the plaintiff's representative within a reasonable time, uh, he had, uh, the president of Triad had letters from me naming the correct defendant. And then when it came time to sue, I named the wrong defendant, but the agent for service of process was still this entity, so he was notified many times, including the notification by the government, the whole insurance carrier, etc., and by the other uh, entity, the uh, manufacturer
0: of the uh, of the uh, of the uh, Magneto's. Uh, and sir, for some reason our clock's not running, so I'll give you about another 30 seconds. Okay, real for quick.
1: Uh, I would hate to see the complaint that will address all the things that he says needs to be in the complaint. It's notice pleading in North Carolina. There was plenty of notice. I do need to address several things. You're right. There was never a denial of the actual claim. The claim was actually never discussed. Uh, no choice of law analysis was needed. He's right, because the choice of law had already been made because it was in the contract and statute 1G confirms that. But two important points. One. The DTPA claim did not arise in South Carolina. It arose in North Carolina. They're wrong. The crash occurred in South Carolina. The tort claim arose in South Carolina. But the DTPA claim did not. And finally, the action is not barred under South Carolina law. Just one last point. Remind the court that it has to be shown that there is no element, no set of circumstances, no law, no facts under which this plaintiff may proceed I just don't believe that's true. I believe there are many avenues plaintiffs can proceed. And if, if that's an issue with the complaint, then we should be allowed to, to amend the complaint. Lastly, if I may, just to address her concerns about jurisdiction. I'll give you about 10 more seconds. I'm engaged in four battles nationally based upon the recent Supreme Court decisions over personal jurisdiction. I'm familiar with that. We would have fought a battle in South Carolina over personal jurisdiction, I assure
0: you. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Thanks, sir. We will consider your case submitted, and um, we'll be at ease for a few minutes um, while the parties change out for our next argument in uh, Cochilla versus Madame Carolina.